0: Good morning, NBC Arlington. I'm Joe Carter. I'm one of the pastors for our location. I've been looking forward to sharing God's word with you this morning. Uh, in fact, I've been wanting to share this message with you for about 840 days. Um, almost two and a half years ago, NBC was in a series in 1 Corinthians, and I was uh, asked to prepare a sermon, uh, a version of the sermon, to preach on May 11th, or excuse me, May 22nd, 2020. Uh, and some of you may remember, that was 11 days after uh, Covid was declared a global pandemic, and it was the first Sunday that NBC stopped having in-person services. So uh, I figured that was a sign that maybe I should work on this a little bit longer. Maybe it wasn't quite ready. <laughs> um, so I'm glad I was forced to wait, though, because uh, I think this message fits better with the uh, the current series we're in called "Now I See It." And in this sermon series, various NBC pastors are going to talk about uh, how God has brought them through certain things in their life and how they're able to see in hindsight. How God was using their struggles and their pains uh, for for his good. And the situation I want to talk about today, it's one that's deeply embarrassing. Um, But God not only brought me through it, he put it on my heart to share with you so that maybe you won't walk down the same path that I took. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, We're going to look at verses 9 through 20. But let me start this morning by praying for our time together. Lord Jesus. Open our hearts as we read your holy word. Helps to leave here today with a better understanding of the meaning of the text we're about to read. But most importantly, Lord, helps to apply the scripture in a way that brings glory to you. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Now we're going to look at the text in just a moment. But before we do, I want, us to, uh, I want you to join me in a thought experiment. Now imagine that I give you a small device that can do only one thing and it can be used only one time. What this uh, device does, it allows you to send a message back to yourself on your 13th birthday. Now there are two conditions for using this device. The first is that whatever uh, message you send, your younger self has to strictly and unfailingly follow whatever advice you give yourself. And second, that the message can only contain three words. So I started thinking about this thought experiment about three years ago, and I've only come up with two interesting answers. My first thought, was to send this three word bit of advice to myself, buy Apple stock. <laughs> <laughs> now, while Apple is one of the most valuable companies in the world today, uh, on the day I became a teenager in 1982, Apple stock price was selling for 25 cents a share. And so if I had somehow managed to scrounge together thousand dollars, I could have bought 4,000 shares of Apple stock. Um, and that stock had split, and right now those stock splits, those 4,000 shares would have turned into 224,000 shares. And based on the recent price, my imaginary one-time stock price or stock purchase will be worth almost thirty-three million dollars today. But here's the crazy part: that's not the message I would send back to myself. Instead, I'd send it back a different three-word message: flee sexual immorality. You don't believe me, do you? You're thinking that's some goody-goody preacher nonsense that says sounds good in a sermon, but there is no way. I would send back, I would pass up opportunity for one of the most important stock buys in history for some lesson that I heard in Sunday school. But that's exactly what I want you to believe because um, in fact, I, this sermon, I hope you're gonna find this, you're gonna have a similar choice. And while I don't imagine I'm gonna convince everybody, I hope there's somebody out there that will be convinced that this is the choice for you. And since this message I was gonna send back is flea sexual immorality, you may think that's gonna be the the point of this text, and it is, at least in part. But as we'll see in the text, sexual immorality is what uh, doctors and counselors would call a presenting problem. Now, a presenting problem is usually an initial symptom that usually points to something that's much more serious and deeply rooted. For example, if you go to the, the doctor, and the presenting problem is you have chain, pet, uh, pain in your chest and arm. That could be the presenting problem that shows that the underlying symptom is you're having a heart attack. And for the church in Corinth, the presenting problem was sexual immorality. But this was a presenting problem for a much, much deeper problem that needed to be dealt with. As we'll see, it was, um, as we look in the text, you'll kind of see exactly what Paul is trying to get out, that when he talks about sexual immorality, he's talking about something much deeper problem. If you turn out everything else I'll say today, listen at the times we, when we read scripture together. For God's word has the power to change your life. And starting in verse nine, Paul says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that you're members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he is joined to be a prostitute? And in this passage, Paul is taking a strong stand against sexual immorality. He talks about sexual immorality three times. But notice also how he's making a strong case for the body. Paul talks about the body eight different times in this passage. And we're going to follow Paul's lead and look at different parts of this passage, focusing on four truths God is teaching us about our bodies. And the first truth about our bodies is that God alone determines the truth about our bodies. Let's start in verses nine and 10 where Paul says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This is a common theme for Paul because he says much the same things in the books of Galatians and Ephesians. But here he has a warning about self-deception. Do not be deceived. And we're going to talk more about my situation in a moment. But this is where the problem began, with me deceiving myself about God's truth. And I deceived myself at a time when I called myself a Christian. Now, let's consider how this self-deception applies in this passage. And we can break it down into two broad categories. In one category, we have idolaters, adulterers, thieves, the greedy, slanders, and swindlers. In the second category, we have the sexually immoral. And here Paul is referring to both homosexual and heterosexual immorality and drunkards or more broadly, anyone who frequently gets intoxicated. And what the people in the first category all have in common is that they clearly hurt other people. And we can call this the hurt others category. Idolaters hurt God. Adulterers hurt their spouse. Thieves hurt their victims and so on. And what the second people in the second category have in common is that they may or may not hurt other people. Now, let's call this the who does it hurt category. If a man has sex with a woman without her consent, well, then obviously that's immoral. But if a man has consensual sex with a man or with a woman, who does it hurt? In the same way, if a man is drunk and violently harassing people at a bar, he's obviously hurting people. But if he's home alone getting stoned, eating Cheetos, who's he hurting? Now, putting this all together, we could devise a guiding ethical principle. And if we wanna put this ethical principle in, in just one sentence, we could come up with something like, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, do what you wanna do. Now some of you may be thinking, that's a pretty good rule for life. But some others may recognize, do what you will, so long as it harms none, is the guiding motto of the neo-pagan religion of Wicca. Now if i had said, how many Wiccans do we have here tonight? And hey, nobody would've raised their hand. <laughs> but there may be some of us here who hold the same morality as Wiccans. You replace Jesus' commandment to love your neighbor with a pagan view of morality because that's what society encourages us to do. Indeed this pagan view of morality has become the dominant view of morality in our culture and it has been for several decades. In 1993, an English poet named Stephen Turner wrote a poem called Creed that mocks this view of morality. And one of the stanzas of the poem says, we believe everything is okay as long as you don't hurt anyone to the best of your definition of hurt, and to the best of your knowledge. And if man is the measure of all things, then whether someone is hurt or not is just a matter of opinion. And that's why so many men were shocked by the Me Too movement. The accused didn't think they were hurting anyone, at least to the best of their knowledge, and to their definition of hurt. In the same way, many people are shocked to find that by consuming pornography, they're helping to fuel sex trafficking, and the rape and abuse of women and girls. I know I was shocked when I learned that about porn. When I used to look at porn, I didn't think I was hurting anybody, at least not to the best of my knowledge and to the best of my definition of hurt. But my view and my knowledge was inadequate. My lust led me to shut off the part of my brain that raised a concern about whether the women in the videos and images I was seeing were being physically coerced are sexually brutalized against their will. And because I didn't see any abuse directly, I could ignore it. But God can't ignore it, and he will not ignore it. It's not just the porn that causes harm. Every form of sexual immorality causes harm. We don't see it, but God does. God sees how every sexual sin contributes to the pain and the brokenness in the world. God sees that when we engage in sexual sin, we hurt other people. God sees when we engage in sexual sin, we scoff at the idea that he should have any say over what we do with our bodies. God sees all that, the abuse, the harm, the indifference, and it makes him furious. The reality is that you cannot love your neighbor and encourage them to do things that cause God's wrath. As Christians, we may be required to tolerate ungodly behavior. But the moment we begin to endorse it or excuse it or ignore that type of behavior, then we have become, as Paul says in Romans 1, as those who suppress their truth by their wickedness. We cannot love our neighbor and encourage them to act in a way that gets them excluded from God's kingdom. Let me say that again because it's literally a matter of eternal life. You cannot love your neighbor and encourage them to act in a way that gets them excluded from the kingdom of God. And most everyone who calls themselves a Christian would agree with that. And yet there are many of us who profess to follow Jesus who are deceiving others because we first deceive ourselves. And I did that for decades. We deceive ourselves because we use the Wiccan standard of morality. We ask, who does it hurt if I get drunk? Or who does it hurt if I sleep with my girlfriend or my boyfriend? And we can hardly imagine that God cares about such trivial matters. I first deceive myself by believing that premarital sex doesn't matter and that there's no way that God really cares about who I'm sleeping with. I first deceive myself by believing that God doesn't care about getting drunk on the weekends and that there's no way God has any concern at all about how much alcohol I consume. And that's how it starts. We first deceive ourselves and then we deceive others. And at the time I was deceiving myself, I believed I was a Christian. I knew what God said about sex, but what was he really gonna care? Why would God, the God who loves me, care about such trivial issues as me sleeping with my girlfriend or me looking at porn? And there's many Christians today that still think the same way. Surely God isn't gonna condemn us for having sex, friends with benefits or casual hookups with people we meet on dating apps. And he's certainly not gonna be upset with sleeping with our fiance. I mean, we're practically married already, right? also know Christians who justify same-sex behavior by saying love is love. And if love is love and God is love, then of course God supports any kind of committed sexual relationships. So they promote LGBT pride on social media and cheer their friends' same-sex weddings. And when new or immature believers see this type of approval by other Christians, they say, well, those people, they know God, they know God's word, and they approve of it. So I guess God approves too if you make such claims, if you tell people God doesn't care about who you're having sex with, you're telling a lie. You're telling a lie by saying that God isn't the one who determines how we should use our bodies. You're you're telling a lie by saying God doesn't get to decide what we do and that we can decide for ourselves what's right and wrong in the area of sexual ethics. You're lying to people about God's revealed truth And the result is you're leading them to hell. And that's not a metaphor. I mean that quite literally. You are literally leading people to hell when you tell these lies. Can you imagine anything more hateful than that? Imagine giving someone the impression that there's nothing wrong with sexual immorality and then facing them on the day of judgment. Imagine how betrayed they'll look when they see you and say, why did you deceive me? You call yourself a Christian, you know the truth about God's word why did you tell me something that was against what he says? What would be our response? Well, those of us who twist and ignore God's word, shrug and say, I'm sorry. I just want to fit in with America's culture. I wanted to fit in with a specific political group or social group. I want to look tolerant on Instagram and Twitter. I first deceived you because I first deceived myself. If you deceive yourself about God's word, you will eventually deceive others. So don't deceive yourself. Don't deceive yourself by thinking that you are the one that determines the truth about our bodies. God, and God alone, not you, not the culture, determines what is true and what is false about our bodies. But what do you do if, like me, you've already deceived yourself about the truth? What do you do when you allow this self-deception to lead to sin? Are you automatically doomed to hell? And the answer is yes, but... Yes, your sins doom you to hell, and that's the bad news. The good news is that we have the good news, the gospel. As Paul makes clear in verse 11, those sins are forgivable if we are willing to repent and put our faith in Jesus. Now, Paul isn't saying that anyone who has ever committed such a sin is forever excluded from the kingdom of God. No, what he's referring to is those who make these types of sins a part of their lives. He's referring to those who don't truly repent and who won't change their behavior. Now, is that you? If it is, you should be very worried. But wait, you're a Christian. You come to church, you say your prayers, you have faith. As the book of James tells us, a faith that allows you to live in sin is dead, not a living faith. A living faith shows its life by obedience. And how do you know you have living faith? When you love Jesus enough to obey God's commands. If you refuse to obey God's commands, if you freely engage in sins, your soul is in eternal jeopardy. You need to take action now. You need to repent and live your life in a way that honors Christ. And let me repeat that because it took me a long time to wake up to that reality. If you freely engage in those sins, your eternal soul is in jeopardy. You should repent and be given living for Jesus. Jesus says: if you love me, you will keep my commands. So, you show your love by, for Jesus by keeping his commands. In verse 11, Paul goes on to say, This is what some of you were. Now, Paul isn't just talking about the first Corinthians, he's also talking about me. I committed at least half the sins on that list, especially the sins of drunkenness and sexual immorality. And from the ages of 16 to 29, I would frequently commit those sins. And then I would go to bed at night and pray the same prayer every night Lord, please forgive me of my sins. I'd ask forgiveness of those sins, knowing that I'm gonna do those sins again as soon as I get a chance. There were nights when I would be laying in bed with my girlfriend, and I would, before I'd fall asleep, I'd pray that prayer, Lord, please forgive me of my sins. And sure, sometimes i felt guilty, and occasionally, on rare occasions, I'd feel shame. But what I never truly felt was remorse, and I never felt truly repentant. And I certainly had no intention of changing my behavior. Yet all that time I called myself a Christian. I thought because some prayer I prayed when I was six years old was gonna keep me out of hell. But as Paul's clear that drunkards and the sexually immoral, and I was both, will not inherit the kingdom of God. If I was truly a follower of Christ, as I would have said at the time I was, then I wouldn't have been kept fragrantly sinning against God. As Paul says in Acts. 26:20 We should repent and turn to God and demonstrate our repentance by our deeds. And that's not legalism. We're not trying to earn our salvation by these good deeds. But our good deeds show that we have repented and we're saved. I wasn't truly repenting. And as Paul says, I wasn't going to inherit the kingdom of God. And that's the situation I mentioned earlier at the beginning of the sermon. I was a self-professed Christian who had no intention of obeying God, especially not obeying God with my body. And I'm deeply embarrassed to be telling you this, but I want you to know the truth. I want you to know I'm not some moral exemplar standing up here telling you, um, trying to shame you for the lies you believe about your body. I'm standing up here as a repentant sinner who learned the truth. I realize that the gospel is a call to action, not just for the unbeliever, but for the believer too. Now I see it and I want you to see it too. I'm here before you as someone who, as Paul says, has been washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I too believed the lie that owned my body and I could do with it what I wanted. And I lived out that lie in a way that put me on a path to hell. But because of the power of God's word, I came to see the truth. And because of the power of the cross, I was saved from my own self-deception. So that's the first truth we need to know, that God alone determines the truth about our bodies. And we're gonna go through the others three fairly quickly, so hang in there with me. The second truth is that God alone determines the value of your bodies. Let's look for this truth in verses 12 through 14. Now here Paul corrects the Corinthians' view about the value of the bodies. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by them. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us by his power. Now the Corinthians appear to be twisting something they've heard before. Maybe it's some popular saying in culture, maybe it's even something Paul has said before, but they're twisting it in a way that justifies their, their liberty, using their liberty to engage in sin. But if their meaning is obscure, Paul's answer is almost as confusing. And what does he mean that the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body? Now, most of you are probably too young to remember, but back in ancient times, back in uh, 2004, 2005, to get into college, you'd have to take this class the scholastic aptitude test. And on the SAT, they had the uh, section called the analogical reasoning. And that section would have an example like, walk is to legs, and you'd have to choose an answer like, chew is to mouth, because both of these activities have to do with parts of the body. And the Corinthians are also using analogical reasoning. It's like they see an SAT example of food is for the stomach. And they think that means the same as sexual pleasure is for the body. But Paul saying, no, you boneheads. That's not it at all. The correct analogy is not sexual pleasure is for the body. Because that implies that the body was made for sexual pleasure. The correct analogy is that the body is made for God. In a similar way, the Lord, is for the, food, the Lord is for the body, just as food is for the stomach. It's what fuels us. It's what helps us to thrive. And in other words, our bodies were made to glorify and enjoy God. And for us to enjoy and glorify God means, in part, that we must reflect his majesty in the way we live. The outside world should look at us and see his magnificence. But we can't glorify God when we're mired in unrepentant sin. And the Corinthians also had another belief about the body that's all too common today. They believed that what truly mattered was the inner being, the soul, or the spirit, and that the outside body just doesn't matter that much. Now, it was a common view at the time that the body would die and rot, but the spirit would live on. And since that is the case, why why wouldn't you be able to do what you want with your body since it's only a temporary vessel? And Paul's answer is that, of course, the body matters. The same power that resurrected Jesus' body will resurrect our bodies. As Paul will later explain, our being part, apart from our bodies is only temporary. We're gonna get resurrected bodies that we will live in for all eternity. And the good news of the gospel is not just that Jesus is saving your soul. The good news is also that Jesus is saving your body. When Jesus paid the price to purchase his people, he purchased all of what they are, all of who we are, both our body and soul. Our bodies matter because God says they are valuable. Now let's lead to our third truth. Because Jesus paid the ransom for our bodies, God alone determines the use of our bodies. Paul goes on to add, starting in verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So let's focus for a moment on Paul's question in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Do we know that? I, I don't think we do. Or more accurately, I don't think we understand it enough to really believe it. We believe that we are like members of Christ's own body. Or that we're similar to Christ's own body. But that's not what Paul is saying. Yes, there's some mystical and metaphorical sense that we are that we are collectively part of Christ's body. But as the context shows, Paul means it quite literally. We are literally members of the body of Christ. Notice how in the rest of the verse he says, shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Now, as Paul is saying that some of the people in the church of Corinth are literally uniting Jesus with prostitutes. But how does that make sense? We are using our own bodies to engage in sexual sin. So how exactly are we involved in Jesus in that act? think about it this way. Think about the connection between a pregnant woman and the the baby in her womb. Now, the baby is a unique and distinct human being. As Pastor David mentioned last week, the unborn baby is not a part of the woman. It is a person within the woman. And these two human beings are connected physically by the placenta and the umbilical cord. Now, if a woman who is pregnant ingests cocaine or heroin, she involuntarily makes her baby a participant in her drug habit. If that woman uses vodka or whiskey, she involuntarily makes her baby a participant in her alcohol habit. In the same way, a person involved in sexual immorality makes Jesus an involuntary participant in their sin. Just as the mother and the child are two beings connected physically, Jesus and the believer are connected spiritually. That's what it means when we say we're united with Christ. Our human spirit and the Holy Spirit are eternally united. And because we are connected to Jesus spiritually, and because sexual intercourse is not just part of our body, it includes our spirit also, we are involving Jesus in these acts of immorality. As Paul says in verse 16 and 17, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And when Paul says the two will become one flesh, of course, he's referring to Genesis 2 24. And how sexual intercourse creates a one flesh union. This applies not only to the conjugal act of marriage, it also applies to any sexual intercourse, including with prostitutes. So when a believer who is one with Christ spiritually engages in bodily union with a prostitute, he is forcing Christ to be united with a prostitute. And that's an idea that Paul finds repugnant. But why is Paul so disgusted by this idea? It can be because Paul thinks that prostitutes themselves are repugnant. Jesus came to die for sinners. That includes prostitutes. But what Paul is disturbed by is that we are taking a meaningful act, sexual intercourse, and stripping it of all its God-given meaning. Before we get to the, the meaning of what sex is, let's make sure you understand how this passage applies to you. Now, Paul is talking about sex with prostitutes because the Corinthian people are literally having sex with prostitutes. But don't think that'll let you off the hook because you're not sleeping with call girls or gigolos. The Corinthians lived at a time when commitment-free sex still had some monetary value. Today though, casual sex has become so devalued that it's considered to have no value at all. You can find people who would hook up with you on some social media app. They won't even ask your name. But those same people will be deeply hurt if you offer them money for sex or you expected money in return. That implies that what you're offering them has some kind of value. That, that means that their sexual act still retains some monetary value. This applies, so this applies to you if you're sleeping with anyone that is not your spouse. And Paul's point is that a believer belongs body, soul, and spirit to Jesus. And any unholy union, with anyone else is a betrayal of our union with Christ. And that's why sex is reserved for holy matrimony. But what exactly makes it wrong? That's something we have a really hard time wrapping our head around. It goes back to the type of thing we mentioned earlier about who does it hurt? And there are numerous reasons, but there's one I want to focus on that we don't think about often enough. When we engage in sex outside of marriage, we are involving Jesus in a lie. We are involving the one who is the embodiment of truth in an act of profound dishonesty. And we tend to think of truth and falsehood just solely about the words we use. But we also communicate with our bodies. For example, sexual intercourse is a form of nonverbal communication between two human beings. And that nonverbal communication is communicating profound truths. That's a bit complicated. So let me say it again. Sexual intercourse is a form of nonverbal communication between two human beings. And that nonverbal communication, the message being sent from one body to another is communicating profound truths. For example, when we engage in sexual intercourse, two human beings are physically communicating to the other love and commitment. When you have sex with somebody, your body is communicating not only you love them, but that you've already made a commitment before God and man that you are gonna be with them for all time. That's how God designed sex to work. Now, some people may scoff at the idea, but intuitively, we know it's true. We try to deceive ourselves and even gaslight others who think that sex is communicating something powerful and profound. And a good example of this is the 2001 film, Vanilla Sky, with Tom Cruise and Cameron Diaz. And in this movie, the two have had sex about four different times, and Tom's character thinks that he's just having meaningless sex. And so he's surprised when Cameron's character says, ask him about the consequences of the promises he's made. And he doesn't know what she's talking about because he doesn't remember making any promises. But then she says, don't you know that when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise whether you do or not. And deep down in the soul, he knew his body was making a promise. Or at least he should have known. But we can get to the point where we suppress the truth so long that it becomes easy to ignore. Even if we ignore it though, the reality remains that sex binds two people whether they want to be bound or not. If we have not publicly committed to that person in marriage, then by engaging in sex, we are lying to each other. We're lying with our bodies. And this will cause sexual or psychological confusion. Now this confusion can be acknowledged, it can be denied, it can be repressed, but it can't, won't completely go away unless it's dealt with, it will lead to psychological damage. If we use our bodies to send them the message that sex equals commitment and love, and yet we override that message with our words and our actions, then eventually, sex will lose all meaning. When a person who has been lying with their bodies for years or even decades gets married, it can be difficult for sex to serve its intended function of binding a husband and wife into a one flesh union. Here again, we are blessed to belong to a merciful God. We can be forgiven for the ways we've used our bodies to lie to others. We can be healed so that sex can perform its proper function when we get married. We can also be restored so that we can be truly united with our spouse in one flesh union. But while healing and restoration are possible, it's so much better not to damage ourselves and others in the first place. And I say that as an experience and I plead with you to avoid such damage by not engaging in sexual sin. Or if you're already engaged in sexual sin, just stop. Show you love and care for the other person by stopping enough to not cause you more harm to yourself and others. And how do we do that? Paul gives a simple solution in verse 18. Flee sexual immorality. To flee is to run away from danger or evil. And sexual immorality is a danger and evil we desperately need to run from. Over the last few years, We've seen entire nations take extreme precautions to avoid the dangers of the coronavirus. Now imagine if those of us in the church took sexual immorality that seriously as we do the coronavirus. We should take it seriously because we seriously believe that God determines the use of our bodies. And now we come to the fourth and final truth we need to know. God alone determines the price of our bodies. In the last two sentences of this chapter, Paul says, you are not your own For you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Let's unpack that statement. First, Paul says you are not your own. You never were. The idea that you were ever some autonomous being, that you owned yourself or belonged to yourself was always an illusion. As Paul says in Romans chapter 6, you used to be slaves to sin, but now, since you belong to Jesus, you have been set free from sin and become slaves to righteousness, we were slaves of sin, but Jesus bought us, Paul says, with a price. And what was that price? The apostle Peter tells the answer in 1 Peter 1, 18-19. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious, precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. We were bought with the precious blood of Jesus. That's not literally a metaphor. Jesus literally shed his blood to pay our sins, including our sexual sins. I want to take a moment to make that point clear. We are often tempted to let ourselves off the hook and downplay the seriousness of our sin. We tend to forget the grave violations we have committed against the Holy God and the price Jesus had to pay to restore us to the Father. We tend to lump all of our sins in one bucket as if the number of sins, individual sins, doesn't matter. We tend to think that it was or whether it's a thousand or ten thousand, a hundred thousand. Jesus has to pay for it, so it's all the same. We act as if there's just a big lump of waste that we call sin and hand over to God for disposal. But that's not what the Bible says. In Second Corinthians five ten, Paul says, "For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while well in the body, whether good or bad." And Hebrews two two also tells us that every violation of disobedience received as just punishment. You ever notice that you tend to care less about what a, the price is when somebody else is paying? Now economists call this the third-party payer, third payer problem. And a good example is like when you go to the hospital and if you have to pay for it yourself, well, you're probably gonna skip all the unnecessarily, unnecessarily tests. But if the insurance company is for it, give me all the tests, give me all you got because we don't care if somebody else is paying for it. And that's often how we think of sin, especially sexual sin. Since Jesus already paid the price. What does it matter if I add more of you to my tally before I stop? But it matters a great deal. In a sermon in the 1700s, the Puritan theologian Jonathan Edwards said that people in hell would give the world to have committed just one less sin. And think about that. People in hell would be ready to give the world to have committed just one less sin. Now, the people in hell don't care about God. They don't love God, so they aren't concerned about his holiness. No, what they're concerned about is having to pay the price themselves. They're having to directly pay for their sins, and they would give anything to not have to pay that price. Now, if people in hell would give anything in the world to have committed just one less sin, how much more should we be willing to give up to spare Jesus having to pay for our sins? And that's why I truly would be willing to give up $34 million to have a few fewer sexual sins that Jesus had to pay for. I should be willing to give up all the money in the world for there is no amount of money that is worth the precious blood of Jesus. Unfortunately, I can't go back in time and tell my younger self to flee sexual immorality. But I can do my best to convince you that the price of sexual sin is too high. In fact, the price is so high you can't pay it yourself Jesus has to pay it for you. And he had to die to pay that price. As Peter said, it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that he paid the ransom for us. It was with his precious blood. Why didn't, don't we take this more seriously? Why didn't I take it more seriously? Because I didn't appreciate how much it cost Jesus. Let me give you an example of costly love. During the 11th century, there was a series of religious crusades, of course, that we know as the Crusades. And in the last crusade, there was a Welsh knight named Sir Grimbald who was captured by the Muslims. And they told Grimbald that they would let him go if he could pay a gruesome ransom. They let him go if the knight's young wife, Lady Sybil, would cut off her hand and send it to the Muslims. So to free her husband, Lady Sybil did just that. She cut off her right hand and gave it as a ransom so that her husband could be freed. Now, how would you respond If someone loved you so much they cut off their right hand to pay your ransom. Would you dishonor them? Would there be a day goes by that you didn't think about their sacrifice? I'm sad to say that I would, and I did. Jesus loved me enough to pay an even higher price for my body. To pay my ransom, he let them drive nails through his hands and through his feet. He let them whip his back bloody and smash a crown of thorns and rip his... Open his side with a spear. He let them hang him on a cross until his muscles gave away and he suffocated. He gave his entire body and his life as a ransom for you and me. He paid the price that we couldn't pay for ourselves. This morning we sang a song that was written by, in 1865 by a woman from Alexandria, Virginia. The hymn was called Jesus Paid It All. And as we sang this morning, the frame goes, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. If you committed sexual immorality, those sins left a crimson stain on your soul. But when you give your life to Jesus, he washes it white as snow. Jesus paid it all, he gave your body as a ransom for your body. You owe him all that you are and all that you will ever have. As Paul said, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you gave yourself as a ransom to pay for our sins. Let us never forget what price you had to pay. Let us not let a day go by without reflecting on how you loved us so much. You gave your life for us lead us to respond to such grace by dedicating ourselves to you with all that we are, soul, mind, and body. In your holy name we pray. Amen.